but but the thing is, I mean, the the straight sex becomes it's so joyless. I mean, <laughs> it's but the thing is, it's more about him asserting his identity than it is about pleasure, which is yeah. so interesting in contrast with the gay bars where it's all, it's like very hedonistic. It's all about pleasure. Yeah. Whereas like the sex in the gay bars, everyone seems to be enjoying themselves. The straight sex depicted, it's like not even Al Pacino seems like he's enjoying himself and he's supposed to be the one that's basically instigating it. This is the thing. And he's also presuming that, you know, you can't get a guy to make you bacon and eggs, which I think is bullshit. Right. You know, right. it's like well, Ted, Ted would totally make you bacon and eggs. Yeah, obviously. I mean, but it's it's the thing that is he's trying to reclaim when he says, you know, uh, don't let me lose you. Yeah. And, uh you know, having this sort of almost solemn hieratic sex with her. It <laughs> it it's 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 about regaining security in himself and who he believes himself to be, um, which is increasingly obviously being challenged by the the environment that he, he wanders in at night. Um yeah. and it's I mean, I think that's a really I mean I see stuff online today, and I wonder if straight, especially young straight men, are okay in many ways because sex seems. I can tell you they're not, but anyway, go on. <laughs> I mean, sex seems to be navigating not just it's not just you know ig you know ignoring not only the pleasure of the woman but the pleasure that they're experiencing. It's navigating this this thing about. Um, like power and your masculinity and it seems so like complicated and loaded as yeah, an there's act a lot more yeah there's a lot more Baggage. shit wrapped up in it than it seems like i mean it seems like at least in the depiction from cruising it's like wow gay sex is great like it's just two dudes and yeah. they're like we're horny let's fuck and then they do it yeah I mean, you know i mean seriously when you know like i said i saw this when i was very very young and it seemed like wonderland to me it seemed like you know oh when you're an adult you can do stuff like that i i didn't realize i was a woman at that point <laughs> which was which was uh you know because of the whole neurotypical i'm a brain at the top of a spine thing right but right. um you know so it, it really you know and, and i've got to tell you that as as a woman located in a cis body, you know, who is also mostly straight, um, that, uh, that from my point of view, when I was, you know, a kid, it looked like too much effort for me too, from the other part of the equation, like right. heterosexuality, like the whole heterosexual right. thing. It looked like, Wow, that's a lot of that's a lot of work, and you know, I'm I'm not sure. Right, not and sure yeah, I'm even the film makes it look like yeah, so much more work. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm that into it. I'm not sure I'm like you know that into it. I mean, you know, the fact is that you get older and you realize that mm, trading vulnerability for affection is in fact a good thing, and you know, you will have to work, but maybe the work is fine. But right. yeah, when I was young, yeah, absolutely. It, um, yeah, absolutely. This this just looked like the best thing in the world. <laughs> right. I mean, even though all my attempts, my later attempts, which I'm not going to go into, but all my later <laughs> attempts to, you know, do anything like that did not work out that well. Right. Right. Well, it is ultimately a movie. So. Yeah, exactly. It's stylized. And it all this also just isn't to suggest that, you know, gay sex and intimacy doesn't come with its own, you know, huge complications and everything. Yeah, but you all look intimacy. At, all intimacy comes all, with complication. All intimacy. But you look at this, I mean, look at the way, I know these scenes end in murder, but yeah. <laughs> uh, look at the way that the, the men negotiate intimacy with each other when they i mean it's very like consensual it's very like explicit about what's going to be happening and everything um and it's such a contrast again to the to i mean i think one of the scenes that sticks out to me the most is when and i don't know what drug is on the handkerchief 
Oh it's yeah. Poppers. What is it? Is it yeah, upper, I believe. poppers? Poppers. Okay. Yeah, poppers. That makes sense. It's definitely poppers, yeah. But so he's he's sort of like, you know, he's still kind of in his undercover phase and he's not really getting into it. And someone's like, Do you want to dance with me? And he's, he kind of brushes him off, like, oh no, I'm I'm taken. But he says, Well, whatever, you can still dance with me. And he goes and he takes this big hit off of the bandana, and suddenly he's just like the lights kind of brighten and it's like he's he's dancing and like he starts smiling and laughing and it's like it's like really joyous it's like this very like triumphant joyous moment where you get the sense he's no longer worried about who he is or what he's doing he's just enjoying himself and it's one of the only times in the entire movie he seems like that it's it's like it's like a happy mosh pit yeah And, and that process involves you know obviously for closeted um, gay men and, you know, closeted anybody, you know, whether it's um, lesbian or bisexual or trans or anything. I mean, um, the process of getting to that point necessarily involves at some point, it might be short, it might be temporary, but just by nature of the way the, the society is structured, I mean, that process does involve fear as as the process of becoming anything involves um, but he he does seem at that moment, which is a central moment in the film, at least in my view, um, mm. where he he seems to have a window. I mean, he gets windows into what his life could be if he accepted himself, not just in this moment, but also obviously in his relationship with Ted. Right. It's suddenly like he's no longer really worried about just being an undercover cop in the gay scene. He's starting to think, what if I was just in the gay scene? Yeah. Like, period. And this this sort of fluidity of identity of being a cop and a man and, you know, a gay man, you know, all of these things, he seems to accept it temporarily, I should say, but it doesn't, it obviously does not last in this film um, because no. he retreats. He retreats back into fear eventually. Um, well, you know, even even the fact is he's there to say he's there to solve the case, right? Right. And so at right. the end of the case, you have to go home. At the right. end of the undercover John, you have to go home. Right. You have to become whoever you were before, and the assumption is that you're stepping back into a life that you enjoy. Right, but it's not. I mean, it. it I mean, we're getting to the ending, and there's so many other things I wanted to talk about. No, no. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll hop around, but you know, obviously that final close-up of Al Pacino, it's not a, it's not a happy relieved face to be back at home. Okay. So there is one thing I wanted to ask both yeah. of you though, because I was, I, I guess it was open to interpretation, maybe a tiny bit. Yep. When we see Ted has been killed, yes. is it implied that Steve killed him? That's what I took from it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that that would be the really sad idea. That would be the super sad. That is idea. what I thought it was because ultimately he was actually in love with Ted and realized he could date Ted and be yeah. with Ted yeah. and the only way he could stop those feelings was if Ted was no longer around. Yes. Yeah. But That's... in a way you could see it as the end of the doubling, right? Because mm. you know, the guy whose double he was, he's caught that guy, that guy's in jail. Uh, right. is, is going to jail and so to some degree he has to become that guy yeah because that's how he caught that guy he caught that guy by becoming his, that guy yeah it's i mean again you know on the special features to the blu-ray i mean i watched the interviews with everybody and um you know william friedkin was like very coyly like oh i don't know who the killer is it's it's very <laughs> It's it's supposed to be really ambiguous, but for me, I mean, I don't think it's... I mean, the only other interpretation is it's his abusive boyfriend, which I guess would make That's sense, possible. but at the same time, I don't know. But it seems it, impossible. It, look, it, it looks as though Steve set Gregory up. Right. Because right. he knows that Gregory's a bad guy. And he knows that Gregory's, you know, if anybody was going to murder Ted, it would be Gregory. But... Gregory is not that kind of bad guy. That's the funny part, you know? Right. I, no, Gregory is the type of abusive that needs you alive. Yeah, exactly. Because, <laughs> you know, Ted's dead. You can't get 
sex out of him. You can't, you can't neg him anymore. You can't. Just, well, I mean, hopefully not. Yeah, you, right. you know, and, and you can't get him to work for you when he should be writing his play. <laughs> right. And the thing, I mean, the thing that stuck with, it's such a, a tragic moment. Um, but, you know, the thing that stuck with me in that scene is we don't see Ted's murder. We see a lot of other murders in the film, but we don't see Ted's. Um, but when we see his body, mm. the violence of it is much worse than it's. Yeah, it's like worse than the killings from the original killings. Yeah. It's, it's. I think the number. It's like twice as many or three times as many stabbings. I think the, the number, according to the makeup artist, um, was fifty-seven stab wounds. Jesus, yeah, that's bad. And it's yeah. soaked in blood, and it's really. It suggests the intensity of this shame. Well, what I interpreted it as is it's like it was Steve, this entire film, just bottling up mm -hmm. this lust and then mixing it with rage because he can't actually have the release to the point where he's so fucking agitated by the end of the film and hates himself so much that he just goes to the... the closest gay person that he connected with to just utterly annihilate yeah. that person. Yeah. It, it, sort of, it sort of reminds me of the conversation that Ted and um, and Steve have in the coffee shop after Gregory gets home. And um, he, you know, he says, um, you know, well, do you accept that you have to go back to work for Gregory? Um, and he's like, no. No, actually, I don't accept that. I'm not exactly mad enough to kill, but I'm mad enough for something. And mm -hmm. then he talks about how the guy who used to live in Steve's apartment used to go out to the baths and, mm -hmm. you know, suck off like 20 guys in, a, in an hour or whatever. And um, and Steve goes, are you ready for that? And he's like, no, I'm not ready for that. Um, and I almost it almost goes back to that. It almost goes back to, you know, it's like I got. I got almost angry enough that I would have sex with Ted, but then the minute after that, it was like, whoa, shit. You know, <laughs> you know at the other possibility is that they're implying that that Ted went out and cheated on uh, on Gregory and got murdered by a completely different person because, you know, gay, gay people get murdered. <laughs> right. Well, there was one other one I thought of, and... It's ambiguous enough. It could be this. They didn't catch the right guy. Well, they possibly. Did. Yeah, I mean, you know, he says the same thing that the that the dude said that Doctor Whatever said when he was caught. You know, it's like I, I, you know, there I I confessed all these murders, but you know, um, did I do them? Yeah, it's better to go right. in with like you know, it's better to go in with a lot of murders. Than you know, one murder. <laughs> right. But I do think I, my interpretation is it's it's Steve. It seems it, I think it's Steve. I think that's what the ending is all about. like. The ending shots yeah. of him looking so forlorn. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. You know. Um, I mean, and also with the conversation he has with his captain too, where he's like, you know, I want to thank you for this opportunity. It sounds very final. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't sound like somebody accepting. This new, you know, illustrious detective career. It sounds like somebody who's going to quit for some reason. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's an extremely unpleasant and demoralizing. I mean, it's 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 quite a tragic ending. Um, yeah, it's an awful ending. It rings true. I mean, that's the only man that you think he might have been able to love really in his life, and he he killed him. Um, but it rings true to the nature often, you know, tragically in the real world of violence against gay men and more commonly these days against trans women. Mm -hmm. It arises often from a crisis in the killer's sexual identity. Like I can't be attracted to a man or to a woman who, you know, has male characteristics or something. I mean, and yeah. that's what motivates hate crimes. And in many cases, not all cases, but. Well, and, that, that, that puncturing of identity I find is often at the basis of sudden murder. It's and, yes. and, and the kind of murder where 
where it is like an obliteration, where it is like, whoa, that is, you know, it's like you, you right. went so much further than you absolutely had to, you know. Right. It's like you're trying to stamp that part of yourself out of existence. Yeah. It's clearly an impulsive murder is what it looks like in, in Ted's case, because it's just, you know, it, do, it doesn't look like premeditated. It looks like somebody who is seeing red and, you know, just going wild. Um, yeah. So it isn't it's it's rooted in this. Shock almost or. Uh, the, the the things as as Sean said the things that he's been repressing the whole film just have this violent expression in this in this moment. well it does it seems like a crime of passion there are, there yeah. are several types of you know murderers there's the methodical this is my mo and I do this for sort of a yeah. sexual or some sort of fantastical pleasure there's and then there's the crime of passions where it's just things bottle up and build up to the point where someone just they lose it yeah yeah no you're right i mean you know the the guy who eventually is caught um you know uh the the moment where i see that you know killing people has become the fetish for him is mm -hmm. when he kills the fashion guy in yeah um, yeah yeah, in in the back of a of like a porno store, while yeah. while a loop is playing, and it's almost like you know, it's like there's no semen, just blood. Yeah. There it goes on that. <laughs> you know, it, I'm, it, let me just just as um, I mean, let's just drop the thematic and moral analysis for a moment because. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about how cool the murder scenes are. I know that's not... Please, a, please do it. Please do I'm, it. I'm not a... I mean, they're pretty cool. I mean, dude puts a quarter back in after he murders someone for the fucking movie. <laughs> I mean, it's... it's it's might, might be not appropriate to say, but the, the way these murder scenes are shot is just... I mean, the porno theater one is the highlight for me because you have that amazing... The shadow yeah, the of the lighting. knife on the screen. Mm. Yeah, it remind it reminded me of Perfect Blue a lot. I mean, there's there's just specifically in the arrangement of the scene. There's a you know iconic shot in Perfect Blue where um, Mima or a version of Mima is <laughs> stabbing a, a, a victim, and there's this double of her on the screen behind her, and has this amazing you know, visual punch. And this felt sort of similar to that, that this sort of stylized pornographic representation of gay sexuality yes. juxtaposed with this brutal, um, you know, reality with the shadow and the blood spraying. It was, it was great. I thought that um, uh, it was just, just on, even just on a stylistic level, I thought it was really impressive. And that goes for the other murders as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, God, there's so many sequences in this film that are just beautiful to watch. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the scene where uh, he picks up the guy who you thought would pick up Steve um, and they go into the park together and, you know, and the park is just this, uh, it's all leaves and whispers and yeah. they're, and they're walking past this, you know, this, this couple, they're very obviously having sex. It's almost like the door into Narnia. Yeah, 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 it's it, like yeah, this fantastical yeah, world. Yeah. Yeah. It's porno Narnia. <laughs> you know they're walking past this 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 couple that's very obviously having sex in the bushes and um you know and they're turned away from them so uh yeah we can see the faces of those guys they can't see the faces of those guys and you can just hear the murderer singing his weird little song to himself yeah yeah, yeah. It, it is very giallo in its um, giallo. regard a super, lot of the time super giallo. i mean i always think that cruising and um eyes of laura mars would make a really good uh kind of double bill as american giallo jolly yeah yeah i could see, see that i wish because I, I read some criticism on cruising prior to this and this Jala reference point is one of the most like commonly invoked like that mm. that this film has the the sort of aesthetic quality of a, of a Jala. Well, I mean, particularly the close up on the mouths and mm. like the close up on the hands. Mm -hmm. and... 
I really, what I really need to do is see some Giallo movies because I somehow I've skipped them so far. So I, I, I can send we, you a list if you want. Oh, I'd love that, and okay, we could cool. we could cover one on this podcast at some. Yeah, point. that would be great. Oh yeah, okay. um, but yeah, no, it has that. I, I can't speak as to the the reference point, but it certainly has this. Um, there is a really stylized quality to it that, you know, I, I was expecting, I wasn't sure how the murders would be framed going in, whether it was going to be more like, you know, bluntly realistic. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of thrillers, understandably so, they portray the murders not as stylized. They they portray them as much more like quick and brutal and more of, I, I guess, even though they could be stylized, more of like mirroring what an actual super violent event would be like very quick and messy and over very quickly. Yeah. But, this, but, it's... but not at, not at the time at the time. I mean, it's interesting because, uh, 1980 was around the same time that people started to see the, um, uh, what, what, if there was a lot of feminist thought about, um, the link between, uh, pornography and sexual violence. And also, um, and also there was like this fairly famous, I think, discourse about, um, what seeing images of murder on television was doing to kids. Mm -hmm. And I do remember that, you know, certainly from my own anecdata, um, it was very much an era where any show that was not a sitcom nine out of 10 times was some kind of procedural. And a lot of those procedurals began with some image of sexualized violence, mm. but it, but they were, you know, obviously they couldn't go as far as we go today. And so it was very much like, you know, and then the guy took out a knife and suddenly she was dead. I don't know what happened. <laughs> you know, it's like, I just looked at this knife and I fell over and died. <laughs> right. You know? uh, but this it, one, it, it's an amazing, sexy posture, you know? Yeah. I mean, and this one really, it has both an extreme, I mean, especially the first one, because it's in close up, I believe the, the bluntness of the, the knife just like stabbing right in, but it also has those, you know, the rhythmic editing, the the sprays mm -hmm. of blood, the lighting and everything. It has Well it and and we we cut immediately after that to the coroner literally saying it's obvious this dude had anal sex. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. The line is specifically his anus was dilated, was, which I was like, okay. Semen. I don't care what the reference point is. It, it was dilated. That's sort of foul. It was dilated and there was a small rupture above. Yeah. Yeah, which and, which is part of the prurience of the film, I think. Yep. I mean, yeah, yep. which is, uh, I think, just the word dilated. Yes. I mean, yeah. even so that, that, just getting that away thing, from that first thing is all about penetration. Themes. Literally, it's all about penetration. Right. And that and that's part of the mm, pornographic representation, the the fetishistic. Representation. Oh yeah, this is just penetration. The movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. That was something Friedkin had in mind, obviously, you know, to a degree, at least, because I think by 1980, at least a good portion of people were aware, given the feminist criticism that had been done on them at the time, that, you know, the knife in the slasher movie is mm. often a phallic object um, right. in some way. And in this film, I mean... It really overtly represents that with, you know, the, in well, the I mean, porno. In particular, in the first scene, it's like, you know, the guy is tied up and like, you know, he's prone. Yep. So like, it's really, so the knife is really just a dick. He, he's, yeah. wearing, he's wearing a jock strap. You can see his full ass. Basically. Yeah. But it right. gets, it gets, I mean, in the porno theater scene, it gets even like so over, I mean, Friedkin is a big fan, for better or for worse, of um, <laughs> subliminal, you know, editing techniques and audio techniques. And in the porno scene, um, they intercut the knife stabbing with very brief flashes of a penis penetrating an ass. So, I mean, it 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 is literalizing those, um, wow. you know, 
Yeah, it, I didn't even catch them. They're very quick, but they're there. Um, so and cool. I, I slowed down. To so look. it's like the Pazuzu of this movie, but instead it's it's a yes. it's a dick. Yes. <laughs> it's um. I yeah, mean, it's Pazuzu. Nice. You I know, love- we could debate what we're meant to draw from that. Um, you know, juxtaposition of images, whether it's homophobic or you know a commentary on the fetishistic nature of the serial killers murders but it definitely I mean the other th- yeah that is another thing i wonder how much of the interpretation of it as homophobic is related to the murders when the mm. murders are not supposed to be i don't know i don't know how to phrase this correctly i mean the murders are not supposed to be normal not like there's ever normal murders <laughs> right. but well they're not supposed to be seen as well in I don't in know. this in this particular case i mean i i've said it before and i'll say it again this guy could be getting laid this could guy could be just getting laid but he mm-hmm. has fetishized his own internalized homophobia so to such a degree that he is trading sex for murder and he's getting off on the murder he's trained himself to get off on the murder right i wonder how much of the homophobic interpretation is that is sort of seeing these homophobic murders as a statement on the aberrance of being gay and having to destroy that he clearly this the the killer he's clearly not supposed to yeah, yeah he's not supposed to be the hero or, or or representative of the gay community although no no I, yeah no he in many ways i don't think he's gay yeah well i mean i mean he is but he's not outward he's you know, he's, not he's deeply it. homophobic and you know, right and and i mean i do think there are some you know there is an element of a critical look at the lgbt community and uh, not the lgbt the gay community i should say but you know like just the G. The G, yeah. yeah. I mean, the the fact that the leather, you know, the the uh, whatever it's called, um, but the the police, the fetishization of the police. Right. I mean, the film is showing the ways, you know, either overtly negatively in the case of the killer, or more, you know, ambivalently in the case of the, just the bars how structures of power and dominance can be fetishized, you know, as, as a way, you know, it, I think sometimes there's an argument that within the gay community that, oh, by adopting, you know, the trappings of the police or of fascism or, you know, these masculinity and these sexual contexts, it's actually a subversion of them. I don't know if that's always the there because these images, to be frank, do hold just an erotic charge for many people, regardless of you yeah. know morality. And I do think when or even sexuality. I mean, I'll be perfectly frank. If I see a woman in like a full police garb, <laughs> half the time it's like okay, and it's not. I was not aware of that. It's not a subversive comment on femininity and the police force. It's. You, there's a no, sexual. No, it's just wow! Look at that uniform. It's very yeah. tight. So well, there is, and it's... and also you can train yourself, you know, as uh, as a straight woman, as much as a as a gay man, to get off on what you're afraid of as a way to. Well, that too. Yeah, there is that element of of subverting fear into something you can control. Right. Yeah, but also, but also to just accept that well, fear is part of my life. And right fear is always going to be part of my life yeah it's it's like when we talk about you know it's it's like how anti-feminist it is to have a rape fetish you know yeah it's i mean it's those i see those debates online all the time and they're the worst things because nobody nobody ever says anything new and it's always well i just i also just personally don't think anyone's ever solved an argument on the internet period yeah that's true too but you know, the thing is, I mean, with the it's, you know, we talked earlier about how the leather bars in this film are a happy and, you know, fulfilling place for these men. Right. Um, but it is important to acknowledge that 
regardless of whether the film portrays homosexuality as dangerous or not, the danger is part of the happiness for these men. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. You know, it's like this could get out of control real quickly. And that spark that. Right. Yeah. The fear of violence is definitely a part of the uh, culture. Eroticism. I mean, that's the core of sadomasochism, right? The the idea. Yeah. No, it's like the fear of like, this could go bad. And yeah. you're hopefully in a controlled environment where it won't. But there is, that's definitely part of the headcanon. Right, yeah. right, right. I mean, control versus lack of control. Conver- control versus, you know, chaos. Yeah, yeah. It's It's very, I mean, it's a complicated dichotomy and i do think that the film i mean i just the fact that this film which is a mainstream hollywood film mm-hmm. was examining all of these you know contradictory difficult ideas in a way that you know it doesn't fit maybe the basic program of gay liberation in the sense that you know <laughs> it's not it's not just you know it isn't just say it's not just saying that oh homosexuality is totally normal and just like everything else no i mean it is examining the specificities of that experience the the both the allure and the danger of that experience and it isn't um it isn't, you know, an assimilation, you know, let's just all be neighbors message that it's suggesting. But it, it, it touches on this, you know, especially in the Al Pacino character, but also in the broader just scene that it depicts, this sort of intimate binding up of, uh, you know, self-fulfillment and vulnerability of danger and safety of, mm-hmm. of you know, all of these contradictory yeah i mean it is a complicated film i think to protect just say it has just a one message is wrong yeah right right, right. the the image of yourself as a protector but the realization that you can be a predator as well right 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 which is i i just have to say too just from a strictly just filmic level the fact they got al pacino for this movie (laughs) al pacino has always been considerably more open to things than you would think that that I mean, that is true, though. It's true. I mean, interestingly enough... He did play a Cuban, man. Um, <laughs> that's I true. Wasn't, I wasn't going there, but sure. <laughs> um, I mean, actually, you know, William Friedkin originally wanted Richard Gere for this part, which... Okay, that would have been a very different Very dynamic. different film. Um, and was, different. As much as I like Richard Gere as an actor. Yeah, I mean, the thing is with Richard Gere is that from the very beginning, he's been the kind of guy who can do stuff like that. And, you know, it's just part of his... Acting. Right, it's expected. But when you see Pacino in this role, yeah. it's sort of almost playing against his traditional role. Oh, works. Um, oh, have either of you guys ever seen Internal Affairs? I mean, not not the um, uh, not uh, Infernal Affairs, but no. Infernal <laughs> Internal Affairs, the movie by Mike Figgis, star- no, starring no, Richard Gere as a amazingly superlatively kind of corrupt cop, the kind of guy who, <laughs> you know, he was was training day long before training day. No, I no, I haven't seen that one. Yeah, um, by that point he was he was already a silver fox, um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's like him versus Andy Garcia. Andy Garcia is an internal affairs guy um, who's trying to catch him. Which is funny because between the two of them, I would think Andy Garcia would be the one playing the crooked cop. No, no, but that's the thing. It's like it's trading on so many things that are inherent in the Richard Gear package, in the Richard Gear brand. Um, down to and including the fact that this dude is, you know, married, uh, and has kids, but he also has a stable of ladies that he is also involved with in some kind of extended polyamorous family. And Uh all of the, and all of them are people like, you know, this lady is also my accountant and this lady is also my banker and this lady is also my lawyer. (laughs) It is it, it's quite fascinating. I'll have to check that out now. It sounds great. Um, yeah. And very, very homoerotic. Oh, 
Always welcome. Always yeah. welcome. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, he was actually, Friedkin was dissatisfied with Al Pacino initially, although he grew to like the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and Al Pacino, by the way, refuses to ever even acknowledge this movie because of all of the controversy it kicked <laughs> up. I, I mean, I can't even blame him, though. I, I can't imagine how much shit he must have got in 1980, all the dumb people being like, so you're gay now. Huh? Well, it's also just, I mean, the it, production it's of lips, this. man. Yeah. <laughs> the production. He's party-sized. <laughs> He's party-sized, as he, as he says at the climax of the film. And uh, But it's, I mean, the the film, the production of it was basically hell because, um, you know. Well, I mean, I had heard that, I don't know how much he did this, but I know freaking, at least on the set of The Exorcist, like just fired a gun at one point to get a reaction. Well, yeah, no, I mean, there, he, there are bit- He slapped a priest in the face to make what? him cry. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that one. That's yes. great. Yeah, yeah. At at the end when uh at the end when Father Karras is dying and his friend has to be crying, he he literally slapped that guy in the face and that guy was a priest. <laughs> that guy was literally a priest. That's great. That's great. <laughs> I mean, there there were shenanigans like that on here that, you know, he would have like for example the killer's character you know, he had the actor design the set, you know, what would your room be like, right? right? And then the day of shooting changed it completely, you know, just something that he totally wasn't, you know, just to keep actors, you know, a little off their guard, I guess is his strategy. Um, but it was made all the worse by the fact that um, there were immense protests on the production of this film during it. I mean... Mm-hmm. I don't know if you noticed um it I I got it right off the bat but all of the like almost all of the dialogue in this film is dubbed because on set protesters would scream at the top of their lungs and blow whistles to ruin the audio takes right wow and yeah and that I didn't realize that no all of like almost all of the dialogue especially in exterior scenes is you know, just dubbed because the the audio takes were unusable. You could. I mean, I figured they were just dubbed because they couldn't get. Uh, I mean, they were. I don't know. I don't know what I thought. <laughs> well, some of them, you know, obviously the killer is intentionally dubbed for consistency, but yeah. Um, and then other like some of. I mean, it was pretty extreme according to the DP. Um, they would have people climb on top of the roofs with reflectors to screw up the lighting. I mean. Jeez. People, wow. People were really trying to stop this film from being made. Um, and the interesting thing to me is obviously, you know, everybody hears about the gay protests against this film. Mm-hmm. But in fact, a larger number of gay people participated in the making. If you look at the extras and the leather bars, I mean, those are real bars. They aren't um, studio sets or paid extras. Yeah, I was going to bring this up. My girlfriend is friends with a leather daddy, and actually, <laughs> a few times, like the wolf's den, she's like, oh, that's the eagle. Yeah, no, they're... Like, and, and the ramrod, there is one in Boston. And it's interesting to note that these things, a lot of these clubs are still around. So, like, yeah. in terms of club life, like, goddamn. Yeah, I mean... That's incredible. There are various, I assume it's largely much more sanitized than what we see. I mean, I'm sure it's very different, but just the, I mean, just having a club that's been there since the 80s that's still there, that's insane. Especially gay clubs, because those really obviously suffered during the 80s um, with everything that was occurring with yeah, AIDS. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean. But yeah, no, they are real bars. And that. I mean, you know, obviously sometimes they made fake names for them, but. Yeah, I'm just uh, the wolf sounds more ominous, I guess, than the eagle, but. Um, well, the eagle also sounds vaguely neo Nazi. So. I guess a little bit. Yeah, it does. I mean, there certainly is, uh, especially with the police and the, the abuse of the um, trans women at the top of the film and all of this stuff. There's there's a, an, a hint of fascism everywhere in this that is really compelling to me, especially. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's innate in leather scenes in general. That's this isn't intended as a criticism, but there is a, a certain. Right. That's just the you know the fashion. It's like 
Police, it's just uniforms. Yeah. So, you know, police uniforms, Nazi uniforms, uh, whatever kind of uniform you can think yeah. of. Yeah, I mean, also, just I just want to make it a point to talk about the scene um, before we, you know, just in general. But uh, I wanted to talk about the interrogation scene. Yes. Um, that scene was wild to me. I, I wasn't expecting the various developments in that at all, but um, basically they the police have pinned a guy that we later learn is not the killer. Yeah. Um, he's just some innocent guy who, who plays rough some nights, but he isn't a killer. Um, and Skip Lee, right? The, the Skip dude. Lee, yeah. yeah. Um, and they're brutally, brutally interrogating him. Um, you know, you get the sense that it's going on for hours, you know, aggressive questioning, uh, cruel statements and things, all of these things. And then all of the, he's refusing to talk. And then they, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, um, they open the door and <laughs> yeah. There's this unexplained. It just remains. This just remains unexplained. It's a six. He's just there it, for reasons. It's a six foot tall black man in a cowboy hat who's totally naked except for the hat and like a thong that he's wearing and boots, I think. <laughs> and he just yeah. strides in purposefully and smacks him across the face and then exits and then leaves. He doesn't say a word. It is. And then the guy is like saying, who is that guy? Which I think was funny to me almost a little bit. But it's also just such a strange, this is what I was talking about with like the almost like surreal introduction. I mean, that's a very surrealist scene where you're otherwise having a more or less typical police interrogation scene. And then an enormous black guy <laughs> who's naked in a cowboy hat well, comes and slaps well, the dude in the face and just leaves. <laughs> Again, it's surreal, but it has this hint of like a scene. It has this hint of like porn, like a yeah. strange. Edit. Yeah, it, I mean, it does. And I do love after the fact that Al Pacino, you know, is like, you actually hit me. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he tosses his cowboy hat out of the window. Yeah, it's really, it's strange. And it, it has, obviously, again, we see that the police force has its own sexual charge to it and i mean to me i mean i would love the uh, just just picturing what the what the in-between scene must have been <laughs> like like how did that happen i mean apparently according to a cop or like an ex-cop that informed um you know freaking on the film yeah um stuff like this I mean, not exactly like this, maybe, but tactics like that were not uncommon, at least in the 70s in the New York police force, which is really, I mean, it's, you could get into it in all sorts of ways about how sadistic and strange and, you know, all of these. And, and to me, this scene is also interesting because it introduces a racial component. I mean, the fact that most there there are uh there's a diverse crew at some of the bars but it's mostly all white and you know all of the protagonists are white and it seems like in this scene um the the cops are exploiting this you know toxic stereotype of you know the aggressively sexual black male form oh Oh, no absolutely a hundred percent and personally, that, personally, I think that's probably some patrolman, some, yeah. some some black patrolman that they, you know, got to strip down to a thong. <laughs> you yeah, know. that must have been a weird day. That was a very weird day, I'm sure. But I, I guess that was his that was his gold shield moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you keep... You're a detective now. I mean, no, yeah. no more like if I if I if I do this for them, maybe they'll, you know, maybe Except I can move up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They'll accept me. It's uh, there. You know, that's that's cruising number three. We're just we're just coming up with sequels here. But uh, exactly. <laughs> I would watch a movie about that guy. Um, Rise of the Cowboy. Yeah. Yeah. Rise of the Cowboy. OK. Yeah. Great. <laughs> yes. This is why you're the titles man, Sean. This is, I know. It's, <laughs> I don't think I'm not putting these all in a notebook. <laughs> um, but, I really would watch a sequel, though, that was just. 
about this guy. <laughs> it's just Nancy Allen. Or Nancy Allen. <laughs> <laughs> just in the same exact outfit, but, you know, with, like, lesbian leather bars. Yeah, yeah. that would be... If that's a thing, I don't really claim to know. Uh, yeah. Lesbian bars are a thing. Uh, I... Well, I mean, like, specifically if there's, like, a leather mommy equivalent to the leather daddy I thing. I am very... I am pretty sure yes. Yeah. Okay. okay. I thought... I figured as much. I just didn't want to say something out Yeah, no, hands, no, of know? course, of course. But there is. I mean, it's it's just as prevalent among... I will say, also, I followed up my watching of this with Bug, mm-hmm. and... <laughs> Um, Ashley Judd works at a uh, bar for lesbians. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. I haven't seen Bug. In, in fact, I mean, I think I think in addition to The Exorcist, this is the only of Friedkin's films that I've seen so far. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've heard a lot of interesting things about Sorcerer and some of his other stuff from that period, but this is, yeah, no, it's just, yeah, this Sor- Sorcerer is quite brilliant actually. Um, and yeah, he has a really, really interesting filmography. It's, I mean, I didn't know he had, he, he seems to have covered a lot of at least uh, generic territory in, in across his career. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this, in some ways, this film, is radically different than The Exorcist, but um, there is a certain similar preoccupation with this notion of an inner demon, in a sense, almost, that, you know, the the homosexuality, his repressed homosexuality, or his closeted, um, you know, selfhood is becomes the sort of you know, possession in a way, and this rage that overtakes, or might have overtaken him at the mm-hmm. end, is almost akin to like a demonic intrusion in some way. I mean, that, I mean that's that's a bit of a stretch, I guess. But no, no not not absolutely. Um, there's that scene later on where we see some of the killer's diary. Oh yeah, and. The stuff that he's writing about actually reminds me a lot of um, Malachi Martin's uh, Hostage to the Devil, which um, I read, which I own a copy of and which I, I've read a couple of times, um, where he talks, uh, he interviews people who purported to be possessed, who he helped to exercise, and they talk very intimately about their thought process processes during mm-hmm. during their obsession the pre-possession um uh sequence um and what yeah and and a lot of what the guys writing down kind of reminded me of that yeah <laughs> it's, it's sort with, of like you know it's like with the like black bags hanging from the trees and you know <laughs> The red, you know, eye coming out. It was very, that was, it was an inch. It sort of reminded me of, um, of, uh, Red Dragon, Mm. uh, the book and the film in terms of like the way the killer speaks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I haven't seen Red Dragon. I, so many films I'm writing down today, this episode. Well, Red Dragon, Manhunter. I, I mean, I would say Manhunter is the better of the films. Manhunter okay. is definitely the better of the films. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't give you... But there is there are those lines of like, you are an ant in the afterbirth and this very evocative yes, terminology. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't give you that look inside of the person's head. So when he starts talking... And he's got this whole kind of jargon that he's made up for himself. Even, you know, the idea of becoming with a big B. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, That's when you realize, oh, my God, this guy is crazy (laughs) as hell. He does not see things the way that everybody else sees. And, yeah, and that remains super fascinating. Um, Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I, I think, Brian, that you're not wrong to see that as... Uh, something that is kind of noodling around in the background in the film. This idea right. of contagion, this idea of, you know, contagion almost in a, in a demonic sense. And yeah. that is definitely one of the things that people were reacting to, you know? Right, right. I mean, the, obviously, homosexuality um, has a, 
has a negative history of association with this idea of contagion, that it is like a disease. Um, and if you interpret the film through that lens, it could be seen as as homophobic. But what what is, re- you know, getting back to what I have been re- repeating myself saying the whole episode, I guess, um, is the fact that it's the shame that seems to be contagious. Yeah. That, that, that this... No, I mean, none of the film, for instance, like, I feel like if this was a genuinely homophobic film, there would be a scene where a gay guy essentially, like, tries to have their way without without his consent. And that never happens. There is nothing like that. There is no sense that he's ever in danger. If anything, it's the other way. It seems like... Al Pacino wants to connect to these people that don't really want anything to do he with He puts it. them in danger more. I mean, you know, there's yeah. that's he goes home with the guy, a skip, and the police raid. Right, a bunch of cops show up. Al Pacino is the dangerous. And obviously the cops at the start of the film, you know, the cops are the dangerous presence. And, the uh, you know, uh, and it's just, you know, the there is a sense, though, that by the end of the film, this the 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 serial killer, whatever quality it was in him, has passed on to Al Pacino in a way, and it ends with that you know great shot of the of the harbor, um, yeah, which echoes you know directly the beginning of the film when they find the arm in there, and yeah. it does give the yeah. sense, which is really, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty, but with AIDS on the horizon and it's the sunset scene um, over the bay, it has this very powerful prescience of this, this, this spreading evil that is, it's, it, it victimizes gay men. It doesn't, it isn't targeting the straights or anything. It's hurting gay men. And it comes from the police force. It comes from, you know, within the 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 men who go into this community but aren't ready for it or can't accept it, it's it's got this really sinister yeah. suggestion of a perpetual cycle of violence that can't resolve itself. Yeah, uh, exactly, a perpetual cycle of violence that comes out of um, othering, yeah, othering it, it, otherwise joyful sexuality. Yeah. And it's it's very tragic. I mean, it's a fundamentally tragic film in that way. And I know that, I mean, it's a bit of a tough spot for me because nowadays, um, you know, there's a big push in the gay community, if that is even... It's certainly not as unified a thing as it might have been understood as back then, but... Um, there's a big push for, you know, positive representations or hopeful or anti-tragedy. Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this off air uh, to an extent, and it is sort of a, it does seem like sort of a shame because it limits the amount of stories you can tell. But I mean, you know, I'm, I love tragedy, right? Like, (laughs) the that's my th- I like unhappy endings. I like it to be bleak. Oh, I knew that when we covered it. Yeah. <laughs> and you were just like, I no, love no, it. I, like, I, okay. I love that about you, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I just, it's just what I, it's what I like. Um, no, no, I, I understand though. I mean, I'm, I'm very similar in a way because the majority of films that are released are trying to be happy and positive yep. and heteronormative yep. and showing you know, there might be a little bit of danger, but we're going to deal with that danger. And ultimately, you know, straight white people are going to rule the day. Yeah, and I, thing. The, so it's nice to see any kind of deviation. Right. And from I that. do, I mean, I, I do understand, especially on the part of many young gay people, the need to see representations that aren't so downbeat or, um, you know, violent or sexual or, I mean, I understand if that's all you were getting and that was most of what Hollywood was producing, if, if at all at the time of Cruising's release, I understand the frustration 
with, you know, yet another tragedy, a horror story or whatever. And I mean, the ending of this film, it's an it's an ugly ending that this yep. idea that Al Pacino, his character, he, he'll never accept himself and that it's just this violent burden for him that he he takes out on other people i mean it's it's bleak it's very bleak stuff so i understand why you know at the time um people might have rejected that vision because it's it's hard it's i mean it's 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 an unpleasant idea but it is it does unfortunately at least to me ring true to a lot of what the closet is like what just being a man is like in many ways. Um, And obviously it's also just proved enduringly interesting in a way that um, even, even if you view it as prob as a problematic or, you know, homophobic film, even it is a, a, a rich and telling film in many ways, even if you view it as, having a homophobic attitude, it has a a complexity, whether it's contextual or narrative or whatever, that, you know, has outlasted a lot of lighter films. I mean, even if it's just to see actual leather bars in yeah. the 80s. Of course. That's, I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's beautiful and rare to get to see, you know, well, there's yeah, there's just there's that level of cinema verite almost to it, especially knowing that a lot of the extras were just gay men who felt like yeah, doing this. Yeah, I mean, it it has to me. I mean, you know, I don't want to get too subjective or personal or anything on this, but I mean, it's so you know, as a young gay person um, growing up, first in a you know in a in a world where a lot of older gay men especially have are just died like a whole generation was decimated by AIDS um and in a world where you know the culture for gay people is so different like it's both more accepting and in some ways it has it has less of a an identity it's become more corporatized you know it there's all sorts of contradictories of what's happened to the community um, in recent years and everything. But it's so important to have a connection, whatever connection you can find to the history of that, of that community. And, you know, cruising may not be, may not be the document we want, you know, (laughs) but it's the document we have, Yeah, you know, it isn't, it's, you know, those scenes in the bars, you know, you'll never see images like that elsewhere. I mean, outside of like extremely underground films or some, you know, avant-garde photography or whatever, you don't have I mean, that. even though it's even though it's obviously a fictional film, there is an authenticity to it. I don't think you often see. Yeah. And it's really yeah. I mean, it's so strange to me to think about all of the people who it reminds me you know we've talked about the controversy surrounding films uh like joker or you know yeah this accusation that films are going to um impact society in a, in a negative way i mean all of the men who protested this film i mean this film did not have an impact even a negative impact at the time. I mean, it was just a moderate success and it was widely trashed by critics, not even yeah. just on terms of, you know, its representations, but, um, you know, just quality of the film. It wasn't a very beloved film. And in just two or three years, there was a, re- a real problem, or like a real killer among the community that really, hurt, like, devastated everything and it just it's strange to me to think especially when talking about now when you know works of art dealing with lgbt issues still come under vehement criticism often from lgbt people it just it's such an like an example of me of like diverting your energy against 
art when the 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 things that are happening in the world are so much more devastating than anything a film could do. I mean, it's just it makes it just makes me think, you know, people who get worked up about movie representations of gay people while you know well it's like yeah have you seen some of the laws yeah. that are passing yeah. like i guarantee you a film will have one percent of the impact of an actual law it's, passed that will hurt gay yeah, people it's just i mean i feel like there's you know you could love it or you hate it but there's so much to learn from cruising both as a film and as a cultural artifact i mean you learn that al pacino is fun-sized or party-sized yeah. I, I didn't know that Al Pacino was a party size before watching Cruising. and I, I will say, as an undercover you know. cop, um, I don't know how good he is. <laughs> <laughs> like, literally at the end, just to maybe add a little bit of levity, <laughs> like, he breaks into someone's apartment without a warrant, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Doesn't put the fan back right, and then when the suspect looks out the window, he just stares at him from the park. Yeah, I, I do... That's not being the best undercover. That's not under anything. I, I do want to say, just to, you know, bringing this uh, wonderful discussion, I thought, between the two of you and me, um, to a close. Um, there is, if if you watch it for nothing else, if the leather bars don't interest you, if you're not into horror, if you think it's homophobic or whatever, all of those things aside, this film has some amazingly unintentionally funny dialogue that (laughs) (laughs) that is true and not in a bad way i like it i mean i enjoy sort of cheese like by the end when he's like lips are hips (laughs) and it's like he's been fully indoctrinated and he knows the slang now it's sort of ridiculous he's become a gay man finally at last (laughs) his transformation is it's uh it's great it's just fun to watch i mean i i think it's an entertaining film it's 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 enjoyable. It's got it's got a good mystery. It's got Al Bundy in it. Randomly. Yeah, that's true. That it's, is true. It's got Ed also, O'Neill, and I was like, "Is that fucking Ed O'Neill?" Oh boy, it is. <laughs> like I said, you know, it's like you'll never you'll never watch an episode of Law and Order again without you know spotting somebody who is in cruising. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it's just it's. I mean, I expect it, it has high rewatch value, I think. I mean, I, I'm looking forward to watching it again already. Oh, yeah. And it's got, <laughs> you know, it's got great um, horror slasher aesthetics. It's got a good mystery. It's got, you know, uh, some... No, I think just, you know, you know, moralist and all this other crap aside. As a film, it's an entertaining yeah. film. And beautiful to look at as well. Yeah, well shot, well acted, good lighting. Made. Uh actually in New York, which goddamn, like for so long they would just shoot in Boston and say it was New York. Oh, yeah. This this is or, the real or deal. Toronto, or Toronto and say it was New York. Or yeah, or Toronto and you're like, I'm pretty sure that's not New York. Yeah, okay. I remember Gemma because um you posted about the Toronto thing. I was watching Videodrome fairly recently, rewatching it, I should say. Yeah. And it struck me like, oh, this film is actually set in Canada for once, like in the city that it was filmed in. And yeah. that was you know, I was like I had never thought about it before that Toronto's Oh, you mean it's not Toronto as Chicago or Toronto as Boston or Toronto as... Toronto as Toronto. And, you know, the weird part is that they don't ever really say where the fly is set, but it's pretty obviously Toronto. Uh, This is something that Cronenberg does over and over and over again. And that makes us... That gives them a sort of special flavor in addition to all of the body horror and the <laughs> you know yeah, but it, it gives, it's nice to anyway it's nice to see in brief it's nice to see a film shot in the place it's that's set. in new york that's in yeah. new york yep. yeah it's good um and just you know as a period piece of new york in the 70s as all of that it's it's great um so i would give this a hearty recommendation um personally it's um, not for not for everyone, but I loved it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know I love it because I was the person who was like, we've got to do cruising. But, um, but yeah, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure having you on, Gemma. I, I, I know. This has been great. We should do this again sometime. Yeah, we should absolutely do this again.
Oh, we could cover all of the all of the problematic films of the past <laughs> that we yeah, take guilty baby. pleasure. Let's that'll do be, it. That'll be great. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, do you want to do the plug, Sean? Yes, we are on Twitter at celluloid sits with a Z. We have a Patreon. I'm never gonna fucking update. Just pay me. No, I'm <laughs> sorry. Um, I will eventually update it with new material. But if you want to donate a dollar to the cause, be greatly appreciated. And we're on Anchor.fm/slash celluloid sits, and we're also on YouTube. And I am slowly updating the catalog there. Cool, cool, all good. Um, so cool. thank you. Thank you both. I've been Brian O'Connell. I've been Gemma Files. And I'm Sean M. Thompson. And just a general reminder to all you dear listeners tonight that if you only like to watch, don't put the handkerchief in your pocket. Don't upset some guy who wants to get pissed yeah, on man. you. Yeah, man. All he wanted was a golden shower. Just one golden shower. He wouldn't get... That's the side movie we need about that guy's... <laughs> Tragic story. Cruising for. <laughs> Just desperately trying to get peed on. <laughs> Cruising for. Take that fucking hot kanky out of your pocket. <laughs> Good night, Good night. everybody. Good night.